Well, folks, how's it going? Welcome to the show. This is session 46 of our synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 16. In our last session, Jesus gave three parables, which were given as a response to indignant religious leaders who were appalled that Jesus would enjoy a dinner with people who were notorious for their sin. We're not told what those sins were, but you can use your imagination. But the religious leaders were upset about it because here Jesus is, supposedly a man from God, who's having too good a time with people who aren't known for their religion, but known for their sins. So Jesus gave three parables explaining what was really going on. Each parable told the story about something that was lost. The first parable was about a lost sheep. Sheep naturally wander off out of curiosity without really thinking about the consequences. And by the time they do, it's too late. They're lost. They don't know the way back. And the more they do to find their way back, the more lost they get. Well, the sheep represent the human race historically and individually. It was curiosity that led Eve to sin And then it was Eve's sin that led her husband Adam to sin. And through them, all of us have inherited a sin nature in our DNA. All of us individually, as a race, as a species, find ourselves lost with need for a Savior. And none of us really know what that means, but we all feel it at some point in our lives. Things aren't right. We try to save ourselves through a wide range of things offered to us either by the world system, the occult, or even religious ritualism. We all have different makeups, so we all tend to try different approaches to saving ourselves from something we all sense inside. But just like the lost sheep, the more we do to find ourselves, the more lost we get. That's why the parable of the lost sheep concludes with the owner of the sheep being the one who searches until he finds the sheep that's lost. He doesn't search and give up. He searches until he finds it. And when he finds it, there's no scolding, there's no anger, there's no condemnation, there's no demands for an acknowledgement of all that's gone wrong. That's already there anyway if you're lost. You know when you're lost. The sheep knew it was lost and wanted to be found. And when it was found, it was picked up and carried on its owner's shoulders all the way home. Once you're saved, you're carried on Jesus' shoulders all the way to heaven. So many Christians are confused about this, and there's all kinds of heated debate and false doctrine about whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation. The only way you can lose your salvation is if Jesus drops you. In this parable, it was the owner of the sheep who searched for the sheep. It was the owner of the sheep who found the sheep. It was the owner of the sheep who picked up the sheep. And it was the owner of the sheep who carried the sheep home. Who's doing all the work? Jesus is. And to drive that point home, the second parable was about a lost coin. The coin's not even conscious of its condition. It didn't do anything to be lost. It's not the coin's fault that it's lost doesn't even know that it is lost. But the coin's owner knows that it's lost. 
So the owner of the coin searches high and low, overturns furniture, lights up every area of the house until it's found. The owner didn't search and give up, but searched and kept searching until the coin was found. And when it was found, there was rejoicing. Who did all the work in that parable? The owner of the coin. And because of what the owner went through, that coin would never be lost again now that it's been found and picked up. Because it's one of ten coins, which was an engagement present. That's why in this parable it was a woman who had the coin. It was to be connected to the other nine coins inseparably. So now that the coin has been found, who's responsible to keep the coin? She was. But then we have the third parable, which was a little longer, and it has through tradition become known as the parable of the prodigal son, which is sort of an inaccurate label because it focuses on the son's behavior rather than his condition, which is what the parable was all about. It should be known as the parable of the lost son. We had the lost sheep, the lost coin, and now the lost son. But in this parable, something is drastically different. That which is lost isn't sought after. There's no searching to find what was lost. And the reason for this is because unlike the lost sheep who wanted to be found, unlike the lost coin that didn't do anything to resist being found, here we have a son who willfully and purposefully left his father and considered him dead by asking for his inheritance before leaving. He never had any intentions of coming back. And while he was gone, the father couldn't do anything until that which was lost wanted to be found. And the circumstantial consequences of the lost son's foolishness eventually caught up with him and brought him to his senses. But we don't know how long that was. Could have been a couple of months, could have been several years. But according to the parable, when he had squandered away his inheritance and became destitute. He wasn't even eating as well as a pack of hogs that he was forced to feed. It says he would have given anything to eat the pods and the husks that he was feeding them. No one would give him anything. And that's when he came to his senses and for the first time in his life, he had a sense of humility. He thought the servants that my father hired were always well fed I'll go back not to demand anything as his son. I don't deserve that. I'll go back and ask to be his servant. He's good and kind. I know he'll do that even though I don't deserve it. Certainly don't deserve to be his son. I sinned against heaven and him, but I'm going to trust and lean upon his mercy. And we'll see what happens. And this is the attitude that God is waiting for of those who are lost because of their attitude problem. Some people are lost because of an attitude problem. Now, others are lost because they just got lost and don't know how they got there. That's the sheep. Others are lost and don't even know they're lost. That's the coin. But some people are lost because of a serious attitude problem. They have a sense of entitlement before God. Whatever God wants, they're against it. Whatever God says, they call a lie. Whoever follows God, they oppose. God is just something that's in their way. Everything about them that's opposed to God, they call a right and will justify everything they do. 
They're going to do what they want to do, no matter what it is, no matter what God says, what God thinks. It's none of God's business. God is irrelevant. And folks, when people have that attitude, there's nothing God can do but manipulate the circumstances in their life in hopes that they'll be humbled enough to change their attitude. But unfortunately, most people with this attitude never come out of it. The more God does to humble them, the madder they get at him. And some of us have noticed people who were resistant to getting saved. We pray for them. We worry about them. And then when all hell breaks loose in their life, we get worried that they're going to use this experience to blame God again. And that bothers us. But the truth is, folks, if God gave them everything they wanted, they would assume that it happened by itself or that they made it happen. They're not going to acknowledge God unless acknowledging God gives them a reason to hate him. All of this is a problem of the heart. As long as this prodigal son was shooting the finger at his father in his heart, there was no hope of salvation. But as soon as he changed his heart, which is what repentance is, he changed his attitude. He turned away from his sense of entitlement and adopted a spirit of humility. When that happened, then everything changed. He didn't even make it all the way back to his father because in the parable, when his father saw him afar off, he ran to meet him and hugged him and kissed him. No condemnation. No I told you so speeches. Nothing but love and joy. The son said, I don't deserve to be your son. I sinned against heaven and against you. Just let me be your servant. But the father wouldn't have it. He grabbed a robe covering his condition which is what God does with us when we have humility. He clothes us with a robe of his righteousness covering all our sins. The father gave him a ring for his finger, which was a symbol of his sonship. When we're saved, we're not just saved, we're adopted and elevated to a position of sonship in the kingdom of God. Folks, that makes Jesus our brother. Have you ever thought about that? He's our Lord, don't get me wrong. He's our coming king, but... Jesus' father is now our father. We are joint heirs with Christ, according to Paul's letters. That's amazing. The father put a robe on his son, a ring on his finger, new shoes for his feet, and called for a big party to celebrate his return. But then this parable ends with a downer. The older son, who never left his father's estate, shows evidence of being just as lost as the first son was, but under a deceptive mask of devotion. A person can have all of the outward signs of being saved. They walk the walk, they talk the talk, they go to church, read the Bible, attend all the religious functions. They might even be in the leadership. They're never involved in any sin. They're spotless as best as they can be. But amidst all of this, their heart is empty of all humility. Everything they're doing, they're doing to earn God's favor, and they think because of all that, they deserve it. This older son was angry with his father and told him, You never gave me a big party. I didn't run off with my inheritance. I didn't break your heart. I didn't live a life of sin and debauchery. I'm devoted. I'm obedient. So where's my party? And you can imagine the father's thoughts. Where is this coming from? I thought you were doing all of those things because you wanted to, because you loved me, not because of what I can give you. 
Besides, all that I have is yours. If you wanted a big party, we could have had one. Where's this coming from? Isn't it a good thing to be happy about your brother, who was dead and lost as far as we were concerned, but now he's alive and found? What's the matter with you? And folks, that's why I don't like calling this the parable of the prodigal son, because we have this surprise at the end of the third parable that shows us both sons were lost. Behavior has nothing to do with salvation. Behavior may be what created the problem in the first place with Adam's sin. Because of that, we're all separated from God because we inherit the sin nature. And behavior may be what creates consequences that will show outward evidence that we need to be saved, just like it did for the younger son. But reconciling with God doesn't hang on our behavior. Thank God it doesn't. It hangs upon the condition of our heart. The younger son was saved because he repented of his attitude toward heaven and his father. He wasn't saved because he stopped sinning. He only stopped sinning because he ran out of money. And even in his state of hunger and destitution, he could have continued sinning in his heart. He could have died of starvation while blaming his father for everything until the bitter end. But he didn't. So what saved him wasn't his behavior. What saved him was a change of heart. He acknowledged his own need for mercy. Not deserved favor, but mercy. He acknowledged that his father was a father of love and mercy. And then he made a decision to lean upon that love and mercy. That's what salvation is. That change of heart is what led him to his salvation, not the ceasing of sins. The older son who was angry... His life of righteous living didn't save him. His life of sinlessness didn't save him. His heart was just as prideful, just as filled with a sense of entitlement as the younger son's heart was before he ran away. So in all three of these parables, we have four examples of the lost. And I think this is really neat, folks, because how many of us have wondered about the person who's lost but isn't smart enough to understand salvation? Never had a good example. What about the person who's lost because they were raised by Muslims or atheists? What about the native who's lost in the jungle somewhere, never seen a missionary in his life? All of these questions that we ponder, I believe God has addressed them in these three parables. Maybe not with the detail that we'd like, but he's addressed them in these four examples of the lost. The lost sheep was lost. His sin nature manifested itself in curiosity, which got him lost. He knew he was lost. He didn't want to be lost. He wanted to be found. So he was found and saved. The lost coin was lost and didn't know it was lost. It had no ability to seek being found. No ability to resist being found. Because it was totally ignorant of its condition. But it was found, and it was saved. The two lost sons were lost because of a heart of pride, a sense of entitlement, self-sufficiency, both of them, but expressed in different ways. The younger son was proud of his wealth, proud of his worldly experience, proud of his worldly wisdom, and he relied upon that and felt entitled because of it. When he ran out of resources to sin, he came to his senses, exchanged his pride for humility, no longer wanting to be lost, now wanting to be found, 
he was found and saved. The older son was just as proud as his younger brother, proud of his self-righteousness, proud of his self-sacrifice in the name of clean living and a devoted life. And he relied upon that and felt entitled because of it, just like the other brother. But unlike his younger brother who exchanged pride for humility, he never came to his senses. And because he never ran out of self-righteousness, he never exchanged his pride for humility because he never felt he had done anything that required humility. And that's the scenario we were left with at the end of Luke chapter 15. Jesus was rejoicing with sinners who had exchanged their pride for humility, while the religious leaders were indignant and unbending in their self-righteous opinion of themselves. But starting in Luke chapter 16, Jesus shifts gears. We're still at the same event where Jesus is feasting with repentant sinners who are now his disciples, and Jesus turns to them and gives them this parable. He says, there was a certain rich man who had a steward. And folks, a steward was someone who managed something that belonged to someone else. In this context, the steward is a manager who was hired by a rich man to handle his business. But it says, an accusation was brought to the owner that this manager was wasting his goods. So apparently he's either incompetent or crooked, skimming off the top, shall we say. The owners figured it out and says in verse 2, What is this that I hear about you wasting my goods? Give an account for yourself, for you may not be my manager for much longer. Now, folks, don't try to anticipate where this parable is going. Don't try to link this parable up with the parables of the lost in Luke 15. Jesus has shifted gears. He's talking to his disciples. They're already saved, and they've gone beyond that. They're actively pursuing discipleship, which is commendable after the warning he gave them in Luke 14. So listen to this carefully and pay close attention, because there's a neat twist at the end. Jesus is telling this parable about a rich man who hired a steward to manage his business. But this business owner has caught wind that the manager he hired is costing him a lot of money. And he can't figure out why. Is he embezzling? Is he incompetent? So he calls him out and says, what's going on? Give an account for yourself, for you might not be my manager for much longer. So there's his predicament. Unless he can come up with a good defense or at least a good excuse, he's without a job. Look at verse 3. It said, then the steward said to himself, what am I going to do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. So folks, he's not even planning a defense. Whatever he's been up to, the accusations against him are ironclad. He knows he's about to lose his job. That's no longer an issue. So now what he's doing is focusing on what he's going to do with himself after he loses the job. He knows the job's gone, so he's thinking... What am I going to do? I can't dig. I'm too old to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. Verse 4, he says, I know exactly what I'll do. So that after I'm fired, after I've lost the stewardship, they might receive and welcome me into their houses. Who are they? Look at verse 5. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly. Scratch out a hundred and write fifty. Don't say anything. I'll get lost. Next. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. Take your bill, scratch out a hundred and write eighty. Don't say anything. Now go away. Next. And he did this with every one of his boss's customers. 
Now, folks, wrap your minds around that one. What a sleaze. But he's thinking, hey, I'm fixing to get fired anyway. I'm not stealing anything, so I can't be sued. And the customers won't be held responsible. I'm the one that did this. I'm the one with the authority to tell them this. The only thing anybody can do is fire me. And that's going to happen anyway. At least this way, I might get in good with the customers. And it's this kind of thing that causes some businesses, folks. Have you ever given a two-week notice and they escort you out the door? They don't want you there for two weeks. They worry about this kind of thing, so they escort you out early and perhaps give you a different job where you're not in contact with the business accounts before you leave. (laughs) Apparently, this has happened a lot. But here's the twist in the scripture. At the end of the parable, the boss man comes back. Verse 8 says it's the Lord, but it's Lord with a little L. It's the rich man, the owner, the boss. And knowing he's already screwed, knowing he can't do anything about what just happened, he commends his soon-to-be-fired steward for being shrewd. Now, shrewd doesn't mean morally correct or right. It means smart. It says he commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. For the children of this world are more shrewd and more wise in their generation than the children of the light. What a statement. He must have been a crook too. He raises an eyebrow and says, Hmm, you're to be commended, my good fellow. You've dealt shrewdly and wisely, more wise than Christians do preparing for their futures. What a twist to this parable. Folks, did you see this coming? I'll never forget the first time I read this. I thought, what in the world? This guy's a crook. What are we as disciples of Jesus supposed to glean from such a parable? But you forget who Jesus is talking to, remember? These were the notorious sinners that the religious leaders were indignant about Jesus spending time with, remember? They're repentant sinners now, they're disciples now, but... Every one of them could identify with the crook in this parable, because every one of them were crooks themselves. They used to be just like that. It was in their nature to think just like the unjust steward, taking advantage of the system, forsaking it, bending or breaking the rules to their advantage. You go back a couple of chapters and review who these people were, tax collectors were among them. So Jesus was using a parable that they could understand (laughs) Jesus was telling them, use the same type of thinking for heaven. And he's also pointing out that it's unfortunate that most Christians don't think this way. I kind of went on a lengthy rant about that in session 44. Most of today's Christians in the United States try to take advantage of the kingdom of God to make things the way they want them in the kingdom of this world when it ought to be the other way around. We should take advantage of the kingdom of this world to make a difference in the kingdom of God. Invest in what's eternal, not what's temporal. The unjust steward's job was temporary. Being a good steward wouldn't have changed anything for him. His boss was going to fire him. So he thought about the future and he forsook his boss. He forsook all that he had with that job for the future that was beyond the job. Remember what Jesus told these same disciples in Luke 14? Unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, yes, even your own life also, unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple? People like to plug in what symbolizes what in these parables, so let's do that now. Let's see what this symbolizes. 
the rich man in this parable represents every human being in our life that can offer us something or take it away, be it a spouse, a parent, a friend, whoever. The job, the stewardship that the steward had represents our function as citizens of this world. It has rules. It has ways. It makes promises and it makes threats. If you do what you're supposed to do, then you'll be compensated. If you do more, you'll be rewarded. If you do less, you'll be punished. We all have functions. We all have roles. There are demands of us from everyone. The book of Ecclesiastes is all about this world system and how it works. And what Solomon learned before writing that book was that it's all meaningless. But we all live as if it means everything. And no matter what you do, eventually you're going to find yourself in a position just like this steward did. You will be unacceptable to the world. The world you tried to please, the world you tried to fit in, the world you tried to educate yourself in, the world you tried to master will defeat you. Who's the God of this world according to 2 Corinthians 4.4? Satan is. The more we try to cushion our futures on the earth, the more we find ourselves wasting our time. But we waste it anyway. That's why the rich man at the end of the parable commends his soon-to-be-fired employee, saying, you've dealt more wisely than the children of the light do. In other words, people who aren't saved show more wisdom in providing for their futures in this world than Christians show in providing for their futures in the world to come. It shows people what we really believe in. And folks, why do we not pay attention to our future in heaven? Why do we not think about that? It's because we just don't get it. Satan has blinded us about the reality of heaven. We think of it as a dream state of a bliss that's almost like being stoned on marijuana or drunk on alcohol. Everybody's going to be floating in heaven happy no matter what. So who cares about rewards in heaven? Well... Maybe that's the wrong attitude. Maybe there's more to it than we know. What if I could convince you that whatever your favorite desire is on a physical level, just name a goal of something you've been desiring, maybe a cabin on the lake. That's my big desire. You could spend years earning money to purchase something like that, and after you get it, there's debt to pay off. You have to exert yourself to keep it up and pay taxes on it. And no matter what you do, you will eventually die and leave it here. It's almost not worth the struggle to get it. But what if I told you you could actually get yourself that same cabin on a lake in heaven where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves do not break through and steal? Didn't Jesus say he would go and prepare a place for us? What is it that makes us think heaven is a vaporous cloud where everybody's so happy that nothing really matters? Everybody's going to be happy, but we're not going to be like stoned idiots. Heaven is a real place with real people, real animals, real structures. There are buildings there. There are cities. There are mechanical crafts of some kind. The Bible calls them chariots of fire. There's politics in heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's a republic or a democracy. Jesus rules. It's a monarchy. 
but those are politics. And it says we will rule with him if we suffer with him. Folks, we should be planning for that, not for something we're going to lose down here. And besides, there are other rewards that go beyond the material. There are emotional rewards, intellectual rewards, things you can actually invest in while we're still here. Instead of watching six hours of TV on a Sunday afternoon, grab a Bible and ask God to show you something that will blow your mind. Ask God to broaden your understanding of who he is. Give God a chance. Talk to him about what you're reading and watch what happens. Ask him crazy questions that no one in church will talk about. See what happens. And when you get it from God, think about sharing that information with other Christians who need it because their church won't talk about it. And folks, what you'll get from that will never be taken away from you. You know, the devil's really something. He's got all of us Christians addicted to spiritual and intellectual junk food. We gorge on junk all day, every day. And what makes it so deceptive is that it's not a sin. It's just unwise. And that's what this parable is all about. We've all got a future coming for us. And Christians have been taught not to think about it. We can't think about it. We can't imagine it. There's no way we'll understand it. But I don't know about that. I think we can imagine some things. Might as well try to imagine a future that's real as opposed to a future that's an illusion. Invest in what's real, not on the coma-inducing addictions that this world offers to keep us distracted. Then in verse 9, Jesus said, Make yourselves friends from the mammon of unrighteousness, so that when you fail, your friends may receive you into everlasting habitations. In other words, and this was kind of tricky, I read this over and over and couldn't get it until I stumbled upon Henry Morris's notes. The mammon of unrighteousness is a label that Jesus is giving to earthly wealth, because earthly wealth is deceitful. It's not money that's evil, it's the love of money that's evil. But Jesus says, use it to make friends for the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying bribe people into Christianity. He's saying be generous with this earthly wealth to win people. What did Jesus say before? Give to people who can't give you back anything in return. Show people what the love of Jesus looks like. Let them see it. Let them feel it. And then when you fail, meaning when you die from this world, the world symbolized by the job in the parable, when you fail, when you die and go into heaven, your friends that you won to Christ will be there to meet you and receive you into everlasting habitations. Verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least, the earthly wealth, is also faithful in much, the spiritual wealth. And he who is unjust in what is least, the earthly wealth, is also unjust in much, the spiritual wealth. How we treat our money, how it's invested, how it's spent, says something to God about how we will invest in spiritual wealth. Therefore, verse 11, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what belongs to other men, who will trust you to what is your own? No servant, no disciple of Jesus can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or else he will hold and be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And folks, I can't stress this enough. Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't serve two masters or that it's a sin to serve two masters. He's saying it can't be done. It's impossible. When you try to serve two masters, one of them eventually comes out on top. That's what Jesus is saying. And when Christians try to serve God while serving this world or serving money at the same time, career ambitions, the 18-hour work days, the devotion to making as much money as you can, you can't be minded that way and serve God at the same time. It won't work because Satan won't let it work. Satan's the one that keeps pushing back the goal so that you're always having to work harder and work more. You won't have time for God, and you certainly won't have a desire to spread your wealth around for God's kingdom. And I just want to point out, this is not a condemnation of earthly wealth or people who are wealthy. It's about a mindset. The jobs where people make the most money are actually the jobs where the money isn't even an issue. When they're working for the goal of being the best at whatever they're doing, They want to accomplish something that they want to see accomplished, and they enjoy the work. They enjoy what they're accomplishing. Then the money just comes naturally. But when it becomes all about the money, then it becomes a burden and a slave master. And it usually shows in the product of what you're putting together. Folks, we're going to leave it there for this week, and we'll continue next week right where we left off in Luke chapter 16. Until then, we are out of here. Take care.